Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Amanda Garrett Baker to the podcast to talk about what parents need to know about instructional control. Simply put, <laughs> instructional control is an ABA term for how likely your child is to listen to you and follow your directions. So ultimately, if the answer is not likely, then this is probably the podcast episode for you. Amanda is a behavior analyst at ABS Kids and is passionate about parent training. So this should be a topic that we all should be listening to and, and really kind of learning from her expertise. She's been in the field for years and has tons of great experience. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, and we appreciate you coming. I have the overarching question, the one that's really kind of going to set the tone. And I know the answer in my house. But when first beginning an ABA therapy program, who is typically the boss of the household? Um, it's almost always going to be the child. I'll usually come in and see a child who's freely making demands. They're setting the rules. And uh, we have parents who are trying to avoid setting off a tantrum. So in that case, we've got a lot of control resting with the child. Now, is that is that really that atypical? I mean, if I were to go into most households, do you see oftentimes where, you know, the children really kind of have a lot more control than we think and that this is something that happens across all of society and maybe it's just a little bit more exaggerated in the in the families that you're working with? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Absolutely. So how do you go about changing this? And this is a, a big question because ultimately is if your child is going to be successful, going to be able to engage in other environments outside of the home, this is such a crucial skill. So how do you start regaining this control, this instructional control? Yeah. Um, to gain instructional control. So I want to just define that a minute. It's basically who is controlling your household within your family relationship? Who is calling the big shots? You know, I don't mind if my child picks between outfits. That's totally fine as long as we're wearing clothes, right? So that's some control that I can give my child. Not a problem. But I need to be the one to decide if you wear shoes outside because I really don't want them squishing through the puddle. So there's certain things that we can absolutely share control on. And I think that that's really healthy for children to have some independence. But when it comes to the important things, we all have to brush our teeth. We all need to eat vegetables to an extent, even one. <laughs> if we're getting vegetables, <laughs> Um, those are things that have to be done. And that's where it comes down to instructional control because if the parent is ultimately setting the guidelines, calling the shots, it means that we have a healthy, happy household. And having instructional control can actually end up benefiting the child so much because they have boundaries and structure and they're also secure in that knowledge that the parent's in charge, I don't have to parent them. And that's a really important thing for a child. 
So, so talk to me a little bit about this, just as I'm thinking about instructional control. And you gave that really kind of clear example of, you know, if it's winter time and your child's refusing to wear shoes, that's probably not a very good decision. And we should probably work through that. Are there other safety issues or are there other kind of big life issues that you would say, wow, this is a red flag. If we can't get over this hurdle, whether it's diet, whether it's, I don't know what the, what the bigger issues are, but this could be really detrimental to my child's life. Absolutely. Some of the first safety concerns that come to mind that I've worked with is, um, kiddos taking off a seatbelt or refusing to wear a seatbelt. That's so incredibly dangerous. You know, you're blaring down the highway and suddenly hear that click. There's nothing that's going to clench your stomach more than that. Having an instructional control means that you're in a position where that concern is removed for you. Um, Same with running out the door. I know that running off is a very common problem for a lot of our parents, um, having their child just take off, just shoot off. Um, And it's so scary. Um, Having instructional control means that you're not having to stress about that. And I know that as parents, we're all really stressed. (laughs) So being able to reduce some of these really scary things is amazing. So another thing I wanted to mention when we're looking at um, behaviors that can be very challenging is bedtime struggles. So if your child needs to go to bed at 7 p.m. and they are getting to sleep at 10 p.m., you end up with such a negative impact for the child and for the family. Um, Being able to have instructional control around bedtime routines means that parents get their evening back. Stress is reduced for those parents because they can have some downtime and some self-care time, as well as you have a child who is well-rested and that can revolutionize their day. So these kinds of big concerns are very important to address. Yeah, it sounds like, especially during the bedtime, that that uh, instructional control can stop the first domino from falling. It's it could it could really kind of keep the child so that you know they're getting their sleep, they're getting their rest. Decision making gets better. Tantrums start to decrease, and it it really probably like you were describing, it helps every component of the family. So when I'm when I'm hearing this, and and it's it, I think we all do it as parents, but what are the, some of the big reasons that we lose this? And I'm going to call it a power struggle almost uh, as another way to look at this instructional control. How am I losing the the power struggle in my own family where it's not giving my child choices, but it's almost like they're giving me choices and ultimatums? How does that happen? I think it begins to happen when we stop following through on what we say we're going to do. That is the biggest area. So I'm letting kiddo know that they can have five more minutes of media, but then because they're throwing a complete conniption fit, that's what my mom used to call it. It's a conniption fit. We give them some more time, but that turns into bargaining. And so I've then reinforced their behavior and we can unpack reinforcement. Um, I've accidentally increased their behavior because I gave them what they wanted when they threw a conniption fit and you know we're on the floor with our face turning red. Um, And the more that we do that, then the more we lose our instructional control, they gain instructional control over us. It's not a great place to be. Um, So allowing children to call the shots, accidentally increasing their behavior, their challenging behavior. And I'll, I'll throw this one in there. I think this is something we don't think about as much. That's losing touch with what is important to your child because that weakens rapport. And when we lose rapport, we lose buy-in. 
Yeah, I mean, I, that sounds like a lot to juggle. And it sounds like, uh, you know, as a parent, it's like, oh, you mean every single decision I have to make has to have all these things built into it. But it also sounds like if you don't, you're creating a lot more work for yourself. It, 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 can you draw this, I guess, this picture for me? And I, I just kind of want to look and I'm, I'm going to give you a scenario and I just want you to show me a, what the parent might be doing that's causing more of it to occur, and then B, maybe what they could be doing. So if I'm going to the store and I have my child with me and I'm walking and they're trying to grab things off the shelf and put it in the cart because this is what they want. And if I try and take it out, they turn into kind of, um, uh, you see the frustration, you see the anger, they're throwing a fit, all the attention in the world is on me. So mm -hmm. I kind of let them put one in and then I keep going and it's happening. What is it that the parent is doing in that instance? Is this, is this what you're referring to as far as, you know, maybe that compromising or maybe I'm rewarding them without realizing it, what's happening here? Right. So that helps me unpack reinforcement right there. Reinforcement is anything that comes right after a behavior that then makes the behavior happen more in the future. So when we're looking at that scenario, you were accidentally increasing the child's behavior of grabbing something off the shelf and throwing it into the cart, right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> By saying yes and going ahead and allowing it, then it's going to happen more and more often. Yeah, and that and that makes sense. And that means that the next time I go, I guess I, I would imagine I just taught my child how to be able to get that Xbox bought for them or the or the PlayStation 4 and every game that they wanted, all they have to do is throw it in my cart and and start screaming and it's theirs now. So I, I guess I just taught them the wrong thing. So what should the parent be doing in a situation like that? And I know everything is going to be unique to every situation, but what is an example of how could I have done that differently? You know, I think that in these situations, setting up with a child ahead of time, hey, we're going to go to the store, you're going to sit in the cart and giving them something to play with, something that they can do that's going to occupy them so they're not quite as interested in the things on the shelf. And then setting up a reward for the behavior we do want to see. And that's another reward reinforcement um, so that we can see we're wanting to increase a calm body at the store, right? We're wanting to increase the behavior of staying calm, being in the cart, and not grabbing things off the shelf, right? So I call that calm body. That's the positive way of saying that. Um, and so setting up your expectations ahead of time and making sure that they have something alternative to be doing and then reinforcing, rewarding the calm behavior during that grocery store trip and at the end of the grocery store trip is the ideal way to then have calm future grocery store trips, right? So, I mean, if a parent were to say tomorrow, hey, I have this, this history of going to the store and I'm doing it every time where, and unfortunately, I've been doing it the wrong way and I've been accidentally rewarding them, but I'm going to change tomorrow. And is that, I mean, is, it, is this behavior going to automatically go away? I mean, it, I hear often is that, well, they'll, they'll do it with my, with my behavioral team, but oh, yeah. when I try, it's not working the same way. I, what is, what's this disconnect? Well, the behavior therapist or the ABA team has had time to build that instructional control where they're doing 
lots and lots of teaching, reinforcing and rewarding those behaviors that they want to see. And so because of that follow through, because of the consequences for doing the things that we're asked to do or our kids are asked to do, the ABA team may have better instructional control. And that's that's the disconnect that you're seeing there. But you're right. It's not going to change overnight because this behavior has been built. It has a history. And so can I, can I give you an example of what happens when you stop rewarding the behavior you don't want to see? I I'd love it. it. Uh, I, I mean, ultimately, is <laughs> I'm guessing you're not going to tell me that there's no that there's not a magic wand out there that just transfers this over to the parent. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, definitely. Um, it's going to take time and it takes teaching and it takes rewarding the behavior that we want to see. And so um, I didn't have ABA when I was a young parent. I didn't discover ABA for a long time. Um, and I'm so sad about that because it would make my life so much easier. <laughs> my husband and I parent with ABA every day. Um, it is our foundation. And so when I was babysitting my nephew, I was keeping him while parents were on a date night. And I'll give you an example of how it takes time to change a behavior, right? So do you know um, how your kid will just pop up at your bedside when you're asleep and just stares at you? And then oh, absolutely. And you Creepy. <laughs> yes, and you're jumping 10 feet out of the bed. Yes. So my nephew, I would put him to bed and he would suddenly pop up in the living room and I wasn't asleep. I was watching Netflix when I hit the ceiling, but I still hit the ceiling. And so to avoid accidentally increasing his popping out of bed behavior, I wouldn't make any eye contact with him. So I discovered ABA by now, right? So I am not going to reinforce him getting out of bed. I don't make any eye contact. I wouldn't speak to him. I would simply take his hand, walk back to the room, point to his bed. I don't even turn on the lights. I don't say anything. He'd climb in. I'd walk out. He'd pop back up in two minutes and hit the ceiling again. So we did this that night. I, I kid you not, no less than 20 times. 20 times. I did not get a lot of Netflixing happening that night. We were not. Um, that wasn't what it was about. I ended up focusing in on this behavior so that he would sleep. And then the next time I kept him, it was 12 times that he popped up. Mm -hmm. And then the next time it was two. And then it completely stopped because it never met with any kind of reward. I wasn't saying, hey, buddy, you need to get back to bed and engaging with him and causing him to be like, oh, I'm getting attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so instead, that behavior went away. And that's what you're looking to do. It's funny when you when you take away the purpose or the value of something, it uh, it causes a different behavior to occur. And hopefully for your nephew here, it was, you know, uh, maybe putting my head on the pillow or, or kind of uh, reading a book or whatever it may be when I wake up instead of coming downstairs. And you've so you've given a really good picture of consistency and of making sure that, you know, we're following through. Um, does instructional control always have to be established in a way that is rigid or uh, I know consistency is key, but can it be fun? Oh, my gosh, please make it fun. Yes, that's like the key, the key to having instructional control, because the more fun our interactions are with our child, the more they want to learn from you. And so if we can establish having fun and pair ourselves with fun, meaning that we have fun with the child and th doing things that they want to do. It means that we have more value and what we say has more value. And that goes hand in hand with respect as well. And so by having some fun, silly voices and some songs, and maybe I'm doing something completely unexpected as I give an instruction to my child and it just makes them laugh as they're going to do what they need to do. 
that's a huge win. I would much rather have my child laugh while they're going to do what I asked them to do than to melt in a puddle because I was stern. So yeah, yes, and have fun. I, I think that that's such important advice. I think that that fun carries over to the family too. Is, I mean, to go back to your passion of parent training, it's if I were to ask a family to come in and say, hey, you know, you have these five, six behaviors. They're all going to be very challenging to work through. It's all going to take time to get through them. You have to be consistent. And I take the fun out of it and don't teach them that part of how to engage their child or be, it sounds daunting. So how do you go about and maybe even just selecting or prepping a family for taking on this challenge? What's the prep? What's the advice that you give to families? I definitely, I think that's a great question. I want to start slow and I want to start small. So if our behavior is pretty rigid and it's taking up a lot of life, then I need to start with something small and get some small victories before I'm going to build it any bigger. Um, so I worked with a kiddo um, once who struggled so much to stop playing the iPad um, when it was time to stop. And this sweetie was struggling so much with control because she'd been neglected before being removed from her birth home. So it was, it was a heartbreaking situation. And one way that we know from psychology um, that kiddos sometimes act out feelings of anxiety or panic is to try and control what they love, their favorite items and activities. And so that was suggested to me by a coordinating therapist. So this child would tantrum and become aggressive when the iPad was taken away. For the parents, that was just so, so difficult. Um, so to use a compassionate and gentle approach, I would start just by sitting nearby to build rapport, watching the iPad with her. I would describe what I thought was funny. I wouldn't ask her any questions just so that she could see I'm invested in what she liked. So I'm not tricking. I'm looking for things I can build rapport with. You know, it wasn't fake. My interest wasn't fake. You want to make sure that you're finding common ground that's truly common. Um, and after a while of back and forth, she became willing to meet my eyes, let me get closer to watch the iPad together. And then I just said, I wonder if they have any videos of pandas rolling down hills. And she started looking for a panda rolling down a hill because I happen to know YouTube has those. So she looks it up and I reinforced with praise. I just rewarded with, oh my gosh, thank you for looking up something I wanted to see. And she's smiling at me and we're smiling back and forth. And this was a very soft introduction to her beginning, like an indirect beginning to following directions. So after she'd had some more time, I would slowly increase my requests, watching for resistance, watching for anxiety. And once she was comfortable with interacting, I began to work in pauses. So I'm not removing the iPad. I'm just asking her to pause and then reinforcing every single compliance with pausing. And over time, I was able to slowly build up that compliance to where she would turn off the iPad herself and set it down. And instead of taking the iPad, I never asked the parents or her team to take the iPad. Instead, we're showing some respect here by saying, I want you to pause and turn it off. And then she's following the instructions. She's setting it down herself. So it gives her room to make some decisions here. Um, but we still have gained instructional control. The ultimate goal was that we get off the iPad, right? We accomplish that without ripping it out of our hands. And I think that that's a really important distinction, especially when we're looking at compassionate ABA. Yeah, and all of those steps, it's 
it's not something that's intuitive to everybody. And I, I, I think that's where the, the professional comes in is that, I mean, you're talking, if, if you put it back into the technical terms, I mean, you're talking, I'm going to desensitize this child to being able to remove themselves from these events. I'm giving them facilitated choice. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm giving them options so they can choose the best option. And now you get these shared experiences and families, I think that we all go to, hey, I got to get this done. I got to do it now. And it's hard to take that step back and say, you know, for the long term, I need to do baby steps. I need to look at how I'm going to get there instead of the ultimate goal of being there. And I think the way you coach that, that's probably why you're so successful as a parent trainer, is that you're, you're kind of helping to frame these things and put it into perspective. So it, it for these families, um, and I would say nearly every family that's receiving care needs some form of parental support, and that support oftentimes in the field of ABA is parent training. Um, so what advice do you have for them as far as understanding these steps or how to be able to advocate is uh, how to know that I got the right amount of work on my plate that I can juggle because it's oftentimes a lot and how to voice that, how to pick which behavior is most important. What is your, what's your advice on that? I think that looking at what is most intrusive within your family life and focusing on that first, meaning what is most valuable to the family, what is gonna be most valuable to the child and starting with those behaviors before moving on to maybe things like please and thank you. Um, I know culturally, many people really value the please and thank you, but I've seen that get in the way of something that's about safety, and that is critical that we look at. Um, so working through that with the BCBA is so important. I'm um, talking to them and being open, just that open communication. Hey, I need to cancel parent training. Can we reschedule for in two weeks? But I really want to get this done. It's going to bring you so much more value than just putting it off because as long as you're communicating with your BCBA, letting them know what is important to your family, what you want to work on first, you're going to get a really great result by doing that. And so it sounds like for a lot of families, this instructional control is one of the first steps to, to treatment. It's, it's a pivotal skill set, a pivotal behavior to be able to take that next step where the child can start learning, start being independent. And you took the behavior out of the process and now you can focus on the the skill development which is where we all want to get um is it would you be prioritizing this for most families as far as let's let's start and just getting this instructional control helping the child to realize that you're a part of their team and you're not against them on the other team somehow absolutely no you nailed it that's exactly what i would say i'm starting with building your rapport, especially if you've got a lot of contention, which I'll, I find typically if I'm going into work with a family, um, the first thing is building rapport, coming back to, hey, this is about us, this is about our family. Um, I want what's best for you and I'm gonna show you that I want what's best for you. So sometimes as parents, like you said, we get very, I need to get this done. I have a meeting at nine o'clock. I, I just need you to do what I'm saying here. But taking a step back, maybe you start on the weekends so that you don't have that stress of needing to be somewhere at nine o'clock and you start working on going through the steps that you need your child to do and pairing with them during that time, spending that quality time and building rapport 
that's going to be so critical to um, later learning. I'm actually learning from you. Now, Amanda, I, I appreciate you taking the time today to share this information with our listeners. I, I think the parents are going to find the, the information extremely valuable. But I think that there's also the piece for all the clinicians is that uh, your your ability to articulate how to work through this, I think it's going to help everybody in being able to coach that process and to be able to kind of make sure that they're doing it in a way that's really putting the child center first. But before we wrap up today, Amanda, I do want to just give the chance because you offer so much to the community and what's going on. And I know that you have a project underway and it's something that I don't think just benefits the autistic community. I think it probably benefits the community at large, but give us some details. Let us know about this. I started an outreach called ABA for Parents on Twitter and Instagram. The idea behind it is to make tools and resources available for all parents and to help spread the word about how ABA can revolutionize the parent-child relationship. Because ABA is for everyone. ABA is for my neurotypical child who went to school early and now struggles with transitions because he's the youngest in the class. He's thinking about cats when the teacher tells the class to pack up English. Get out math, sharpen their pencils, and get started. I bet you, Jeff, five bucks that my son is thinking about two cats frolicking in a meadow instead, and he comes back to earth when everyone else is doing something new, and he's not. <laughs> so ABA is for my child with a learning disability, and it's for my adult neighbor who wants to lose weight. ABA is for my adult niece who has autism. ABA is for the pillar in the community who serves as a foster parent. God bless foster parents. ABA can help every parent out there, and I want to spread the word. So you can find us at ABA for Parents on Instagram and Twitter. I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And I, I think that depending on who it is that you're working with, ABA might look slightly different. But those philosophies and the way that you conceptualize them I, I think that I think that you're spot on and uh, I'll have to go check out this site myself because I, I think it's so important to share this knowledge with everyone. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. 